We glorify God by following Jesus as he leads us through both life and death. It's my responsibility to pursue Jesus relentlessly. It's his right to use me however he chooses. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. If you'd open your Bibles to John 21, believe it or not, we're planning on finishing John today. And uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll start a series in Exodus. Exodus, phenomenal, phenomenal theological book of the Old Testament. So we're almost finished in John. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic writers, the synoptic gospels. So synoptic means to see together. These three Gospels have a great deal of material in common, and there's a lot of overlap in their narratives. John, 90% of the material in John is unique to John. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John uh, wrote it significantly later than the other Gospels. Uh, The words Jesus and Christ, or Messiah, are found in John 170 times. One of the ways you find out what's important to an author is something they repeat over and over again. The word in believe is found in John over a hundred times. And John tells us at the end of his gospel in John 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, I'm writing the gospel to you to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is God in human flesh. And having done that, he then appeals to us in verse 31. He says, now that you know that, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to exhort you to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to experience eternal life. Eternal life begins here on earth, not just in heaven. Eternal life begins at the moment of salvation. So John, really the highlight of this gospel occurs in verse 28 of chapter 20 where Thomas makes the great declaration, my Lord and my God, which is a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, in the Old Testament, and that he is God in human flesh. So there's been quite a lot of ink spilled on why would John then write chapter 21, which appears to be an epilogue to the gospel. Well, there's one very, very important thing that has to take place, and John records that in John 21, and that is the restoration of the apostle Peter. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. We know he's repented from his sins. He went out and wept bitterly. We know that he met with Jesus on Resurrection Sunday afternoon sometime and was restored. We don't know anything about that meeting, but we know that they met. But he hasn't yet been restored to public ministry. So this restoration of Peter to public ministry demonstrates that not only did Jesus forgive sins, but he can restore sinners to public ministry and put them in useful service, which is very good news for us because we sin daily. So we need to be forgiven daily, and we need to be restored daily to public useful service, wherever the Lord chooses to see us fit to use this, and Peter is a good example for us. It's very, very good news. This is a very bracing chapter, but it's also a very comforting chapter. I remember John wrote his gospel about 90 AD. Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, somewhere between 30 to 32 So this gospel is written somewhere five decades plus after the events occurred. Remember that Jesus had told the disciples, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who's going to teach you all things and is going to bring to your memory, demented as it is, everything that I told you, I will supernaturally use the Holy Spirit to bring to your memory. So John is writing with supernatural clarity exactly what the Holy Spirit wants him to write Even though it occurred, he's writing five decades after the events actually occurred. Let's pick up the narrative in John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, 
And Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. Here's our principle. We fail to accomplish what God intends when we depend on us and not on him. We fail to accomplish what God intends when we depend on us and not on him. Now, John is going to give us a very detailed description of the events of this chapter, which is proof positive that he was an eyewitness. He actually saw it. Jesus has revealed himself so far five times on Resurrection Sunday. That one day, five times. A week later, he appears to the disciples with Thomas present. So we know that he's appeared now at least six times. John doesn't give us a timeline for this event. But we do know that Jesus ascends to heaven at day 40, 40 days after his resurrection. So we know that this appearance occurs somewhere in the 32-day period between the Sunday he appeared to Thomas and the Sunday he is ascended into heaven. Jesus had told his disciples through the women, go to Galilee, I'm going to meet you there. So they go to Galilee and meet him there. We know at least seven of them did, and they've gone to the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, Tiberius was the emperor of Rome between AD 14 and AD 37. And Herod Antipas, who's the son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great was the Herod when Jesus was born, killed all of children two years and under in Bethlehem. This is his son. Herod Antipas ruled over a part of Judea, but he wanted Rome to give him control over all of Israel. So like a good politician... He changed the name of the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of Tiberias. He was sucking up to the emperor, Tiberius, and said, I'm going to name the sea after you, and hopefully you'll look on me favorably and increase the range of my rule to cover all of Israel instead of a portion of Israel. Some things never change, right? The disciples are up in Galilee. They're waiting for Jesus, as they were commanded, and while they were waiting, seven of them decided to go fishing. Now, maybe the other four didn't like to fish. We don't know who they were. Uh, it doesn't say. Peter and the seven come under some criticism. There's a number of commentators who criticize Peter for going fishing. They believe that these seven disciples were forsaking their commission from Jesus and that they're going back to their old life, their old life of fishing, after he called them to be fishers of men. Other commentators will say, well, Jesus told them to meet him in Galilee. And since they did have to eat... And Jesus hasn't come yet. While they were waiting, why not go fishing? I mean, it's perfectly acceptable. These were professional fishermen, by the way. They didn't fish for fun. They fished to live. So anyway, while they're waiting, Peter takes the initiative. He says, I'm going fishing. The other six say, okay, we'll go with you. Clearly, Peter's the leader here. And apparently, it doesn't say they entered a boat. It says they entered the boat. Seems that Peter still owned the boat on the lake, uh, which they used that night. Now, when you're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, it's almost always done at night by torchlight. So you light torches, you put them in the bow and the stern of the boat, and the fish are attracted to the light, and they come up toward the surface and get entangled in the nets. So if you're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, it is a full-time graveyard shift. I mean, that's when you work. You work at night. And then when the day breaks, you bring your catch to the local market and you sell it at that point in time. But the seven in this boat, this particular night, they didn't catch anything from dusk to dawn. It's a lot of work throwing nets overboard, pulling them in, throwing them overboard, pulling them in. And you have to be a very persistent person to work hard at something all night with zero results and not quit. So it's barely dawn. The sun hasn't come up. The light's still dim. Jesus is standing on the shore. And they don't recognize it, which is extremely good news for us, because Jesus is present with you and I, how often? All the time, I will never leave you or forsake you, 
and we are consciously aware of his presence, how often? Not enough. I mean, he's always present, but we're often not aware of his presence. The disciples are doing the same thing. Now, Jesus asks them a question, and this question just begs a negative response, right? He says, children, you don't have any fish, do you? Well, who's asking the question? The Lord is asking the question, do you think he knows whether they have any fish? Yes. God never asks you questions to obtain information. He knows. He's asking you questions because he wants to move you in a direction. And he uses the word children. This is a, a word that could be translated friends, boys, lads. It's a term of tenderness. A guardian or a parent might use the word children. And they give him the expected answer, no. Now remember, John tells us, he's very detailed, he says they're about uh, 100 yards offshore. So they're yelling, do you have any fish? No, right? 100 yards offshore. Now Jesus knows they didn't catch any fish. And he knows they didn't catch any fish because he's prevented them from catching fish the entire night by design. If they had caught fish that night, they wouldn't have listened to his counsel that he's going to give them in a minute. As a matter of fact, Jesus has designed their failure because he wants them to acknowledge their own failure in catching fish, so they're going to follow his directions and get a monster catch. The same is true of us. Most of the time, when what we're doing seems to be working, Right? On our own, it seems to be working. Our hearing aid to God turns off. The battery goes dead. And we don't listen very well because it's working. We're being successful at what we're currently doing without prayer. So why pray? I mean, it seems to be going okay. So Jesus prevents them from catching fish. So their spiritual hearing aid gets turned on. He's going to tell them what to do. And now they're open to take God's advice. That's why sometimes when we do it ourselves, the Lord will let you do it yourself. He will let you dig the hole, and he'll let you fall in the hole you dig. And then he'll say, do you need any help? And when you can't see daylight, your face down in the mud, it's easier to say, yes, I need help, right? By design. Verse 6, and Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, where they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Here's our principle. God blesses our obedience with divine results and a closer relationship with him. God blesses our obedience with divine results and a closer relationship with him. You know, it's interesting. It's almost daylight. They're 100 yards offshore. They've caught nothing. And some stranger who they don't recognize says, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. And these are professional fishermen. And this is a stranger. Why would they listen? They don't even know this character. Of course, maybe he sees fish they can't see. Maybe he's got a different perspective. If you've ever gone fishing, perfect strangers feel very free to give you advice. (laughs) About cast over here. And, you know, if you go over there, down there, that green-colored water, you know, there's where the fish are, etc. And if you haven't caught anything, and they have caught something, chances are you'll say, maybe I'll go do what they say. Jesus told them to cast on the right side of the boat. Jesus told them to cast on the right side of the boat because he had placed a great school of fish on the right side of the boat for them to catch. Now, the boat they're fishing in probably about 26 feet long, 25, 26 feet long, seven and a half to eight feet wide. In 1986, the Sea of Galilee experienced a massive drought, and the waters receded, 
and there were people playing around on the shore, and they found this piece of wood turned out to be the hull of a fishing boat. And they dated it when they excavated it. It took them two, three years to excavate it because you just can't take mud, waterlogged wood. It's got the consistency of cardboard. You take it out, it's going to not survive. So they had to encase it and everything else and preserve it. And this is found in the museum right by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Jesus Boat. It was dated between 40 and 120 A.D., so it's right in this time frame. So think about this. The difference between fishing success and fishing failure is about seven and a half feet. Left side of the boat, right side of the boat. No fish, monster catch. Actually, the difference between success and failure is obeying Jesus. That's the difference. It's not about left or right. It's about are you going to work with God's guidance or are you going to work without God's guidance? When they cast the nets on the right side of the boat, the number of fish was so great they couldn't haul it back into the boat to unload it. And this had happened once before. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, right after a sermon, remember he told Peter, let me get in your boat push off from shore a little bit because the crowds were so great he couldn't preach on the beach. He pushed out on the, in, the, in, the, in the Sea of Galilee and stood up in the boat and preached to the crowd on the beach. When he got done with the sermon, he said, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Peter was not impressed with this advice. Luke 5.5, 5, Simon said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. You know, you can be blessed so much that it's a problem. That's called Thanksgiving dinner, right? So Peter obeys Jesus kind of reluctantly. This is early in the ministry. And when he does, the weight of the fish is so great that their nets begin to split and break. And James and John, their fishing partners, they come over and help them, and they haul all the fish into the two boats. And the weight of the fish is so great, it starts to sink the gunwales below the water, which means you can sink. At this point, Peter figures out that something supernatural is going on, right? And he falls down in front of Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He knows he's in the presence of divine holiness because of the catch of fish, and he repents and confesses. By the way, when you're in God's presence, that is an extraordinarily good thing to do. <laughs> Falling on your face, confessing your sins, asking the Lord to forgive you is a marvelous response. Peter is so convicted of his sin, he says, Lord, depart from me, I can't handle it. My sin is bringing me conviction. So John remembers that three years before, and he puts two and two together, and he says, you know, the only person who's able to produce that kind of fish is the Lord. He did it before, he did it now. So he puts two and two together, and he tells Peter, it's the Lord. Peter is stripped for work, which means he's probably wearing a loincloth or, or a sleeveless tunic. In other words, he's, he's working. You get wet when you're hauling in nets, so he doesn't have his outer cloak on. What we see here is that John is a man of quick insight. John's got insight. But Peter's a man of quick action. Peter didn't want to greet Jesus half-clothed, so he does something really counterintuitive. He puts his outer trench coat on, what we would say is outer cloak, and jumps into the lake and flounders towards shore. You know, normally when you're going to swim, you take clothes off. He puts clothes on because he doesn't want to show up to Jesus in his underwear, so to speak, right? That would make sense. He probably leaves the biggest catch of his career in the nets behind him, and he leaves his partners to find their own way to shore. The last time Jesus gave them a supersized catch, Peter's trying to get away from Jesus, and now he's bestly trying to get closer to Jesus, which means he's moving in the right direction. The intent of his efforts is to move him closer to Jesus, which is a very interesting point of application. Twofold question. Number one, how close are you to Jesus today? 
Is Jesus in the boat with you? Or is he 100 yards away on the beach and you're shouting back and forth to be heard? Peter jumped overboard and he was willing to get wet and leave everything behind so he could be closer to Jesus. Seems like we should be able to find 30 minutes a day to spend one-to-one time with the Lord, right? If you need a little conviction first thing in the month, this would be a good thing to do. Carve out time to draw closer to Jesus on a regular basis. Verse 9. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to ask him, question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This was now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here's the principle. The greatest miracle in your life is your relationship with Jesus. I was going to say the greatest miracle in your life is not fish. It's your relationship with the Lord. The greatest miracle in your life is your relationship with the Lord, bar none. So Jesus had served them before, a few days earlier, by washing their feet, and now he's going to serve them again by providing breakfast. He's roasting fish on a charcoal, charcoal fire. Interesting, the last time Peter was around a charcoal fire, what was he doing? He was busy denying that he knew the Lord, right? He was in the courtyard of the high priest. He said, I never knew this guy. So bread and fish, pretty staple foods in that region, and you ate them for breakfast and lunch and dinner, etc. You remember that Jesus fed the 5,000 with bread and fish as well. But apparently Jesus wants more fish to roast. He's got a fish on on the roast, but he wants them to bring some of the fish which they have caught. He says, go get some of your fish and bring it here. So Peter helps him pull the nets to shore, and they take some of this fish out, clean them up, and barbecue them. What's interesting is Jesus could have just created more fish, right? And why wouldn't he just go create more fish, put it on the barbie? Why does he want them to get some of their fish to bring in the barbecue? God chooses to work through people to accomplish his purposes. He could accomplish everything he wants to accomplish without us. He does not need us to accomplish his purposes, but he has chosen to limit his usability, his his functionality. He has chosen to operate through his people to accomplish his purposes on planet Earth to save the planet, evangelize the planet. Missions, building up the body, which means you have something to contribute. You have a calling and a purpose and a function that God wants you to do. And he's got your name on a job description. Pretty good idea at the beginning of the year. Say, Lord, what do you have for me in 2024? What's your mission for me to accomplish this year? What is it you want me to participate in? How can I operate in accordance with the calling you have put on my life inside the body of Christ? How can I participate? Now remember... Earlier, Jesus had fed 5,000 people, actually 20,000 people. It says five loaves and two small fish. Well, these fish today literally are called megas, M-E-G-A-S. Mega, mega means big, large, not small fish, large fish. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how big a fish is on the Sea of Galilee, but let's suppose it's two pounds. 153 fish is 300 pounds of fish. If they're three pounds each, you got 450 pounds of fish. If they're four pounds each, you got 600 pounds of fish. It's a lot of fish, right? One little boat, seven guys fishing, it's a lot of fish. And I've read a number of commentaries that says, oh, there's all this spiritual significance to the number 153. Not really. Fishermen always count fish. Is that correct? I've never met a fisherman yet that didn't count fish, especially when you're going to sell them at market in an hour. 
They counted the fish, and they had to divvy them up evenly. There are seven of them, so they counted them at that point. So the interesting story is that without God, they caught nothing. With God, they had the biggest catch of their careers. The catch was so great, their net should not have broken. It was a miracle they didn't. So God enabled them to catch the fish. He'd also enabled them to keep the fish that they caught and not lose any of them. We could spend a lot of time on the spiritual implications of that. But Jesus then invites them to breakfast. Now, when in that era, if you shared a meal with somebody, that was a sign of intimate friendship. You just didn't eat with your enemies. If you ate with an enemy, it meant that they were now your friend. It meant that you were now reconciled. It meant that you were going to protect and defend them even to the point of laying down your life. So hospitality was a very, very big deal. When Jesus invited them to have breakfast with him, he says, you are my friends, I will protect you, I will lay down my life for you, I will, you are my family. Very intimate gesture. The text says, interestingly, that they didn't dare ask him, who are you? Because the catch told them that it was the Lord, right? Miracle catch. But he didn't look exactly like he did before. One of the things you will find when you're looking at the resurrected Christ post-grave, people have trouble recognizing him. He doesn't look exactly like he did before. There's enough commonality to say, yeah, I think I remember you, but he's different. Now remember, Jesus now has a resurrection body. This same resurrection body that they're looking at is going to ascend into heaven and is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. The same resurrection body they were looking at. Whoa. I wonder what they saw. It's clear that his post-resurrection body is different than his pre-resurrection body, but it's also clear that he's recognizable, which means that we will know each other in heaven for obvious reasons. John records this is the third post-resurrection appearance Jesus made to the disciples as a group. This is, he's appeared six times, but this is the disciples as a group. And John is basically saying, look, the more eyewitnesses that you can bring into a court of law, the stronger your case. Jesus' resurrection is, you know, not like the, the Loch Ness monster. You know, you hear about this Loch Ness monster up in Scotland. They've never had one credible sighting in 60, 70 years. But it keeps, the, the myth keeps going on, it's got to be there. Since the resurrection, Jesus has been seen with multiple people in multiple locations over multiple time periods. We've got documented eyewitness evidence of his resurrection. And as we mentioned before, the greatest blessing was not the fish. The greatest blessing is having breakfast with Jesus. Here's what's amazing. You can have breakfast with Jesus every day. And you can have lunch with him. And if you believe in high tea at four, you can do high tea with him at four, right? It's easy to value what Jesus does for you as opposed to valuing for who he is. Having a personal relationship with the Lord is the ultimate treasure. If there's one thing you ought to put at the top of the prayer list of gratitude is, thank you, Jesus, that you came and saved me and that I have eternal life with you in heaven and on earth because of your sacrifice on my behalf, which demonstrates your unconditional love. You know, they were going to sell that fish this morning. That catch was going to get sold to market in a few hours. But their relationship with Jesus was eternal. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. There are so many ways we could go with this. I'm just going to state our principle. If you love Jesus, 
you will care for his family. If you love Jesus, you will care for his family. So one of the primary purposes for this meeting on the seashore was the restoration of Peter. Before his crucifixion, Jesus predicted that all of the disciples would forsake him and flee when he was arrested, which they all did. When Jesus said that, Peter, the leader of the twelve, essentially told Jesus he was a liar. I mean, he contradicted him directly. And he boasted in Matthew 26, 33, even though all of these other flakes, that scripture doesn't say flakes, that's Brad, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same things. That very night, despite all their protests of loyalty, every one of them fled. And Peter, the leader of the twelve, denied knowing Christ three times publicly. Spiritual self-confidence is lethal. Spiritual self-confidence causes us to trust in ourselves and our own strengths, and that always produces failure. I notice something here. Jesus uses Peter's birth name. Simon, son of John. Now, when your parents use your first, middle, and last name, before they said anything else, you knew that whatever the message was, it was serious. And you'd better listen. So Peter's denial had been public, so his restoration has to be public as well. And when Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these he wasn't talking about, Peter, do you love your fishing business more than me? You know, all the nets and the boats and stuff. He wasn't asking, Peter, do you love me more than these other than you love these other disciples? He was going back to Peter's boast that even though the other disciples might deny Christ, Peter would never deny him, right? Peter had said, I am devoted to you to the point of death. And when hours, he denied that he even knew him three times. So in light of Peter's very public failure... Jesus said to him, Simon, do you love me more than these other disciples like you bragged about last week? I don't know how long ago it was, but several weeks before. And the word Jesus uses for love here is agape. Peter, do you value me above all else? Peter, are you totally committed to me? Now, Peter very wisely doesn't put any confidence in his own strength at this point. He's learned a very important lesson. He doesn't try and boast that his love for Jesus is better than anybody else's or it's even steadfast. He submits to Jesus' infinite knowledge. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In other words, you know me better than I know me. You ever prayed like that? You ever said, Lord, I don't even know what to ask for. I don't even know what I need. I'm confused. When I pray, I'm always confused. That's one of the reasons we pray, because we're confused, and we're looking for clarity. And Peter says, I can't even say I love you because I don't trust myself, so Lord, you know my heart that I love you even though I denied you. And the word that Peter uses for love is phileo, which means affection and friendship, and there's been a lot of commentary ink spilled that Jesus was asking for agape and Peter was declaring phileo, which means Peter loves Jesus less than what Jesus was calling for. Actually, that's probably not correct. These two are talking in Aramaic, and there's no three different kinds of words for love in Aramaic, like agape, phileo, storge. It's just love. Scripture uses phileo and agape in a number of contexts. It says that the Father phileo the Son. That's affection. It says that we phileo the Son. We have affection for the Son. The word usage here is probably not important. What's important that Jesus asks him three times. And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus responds to that confession with a, with a with a call to commitment. He gives them a command. He says, I want you to put that love into action. Feed my lambs, my little 
helpless lambs who need tender, loving care. Jesus, of course, is the good shepherd, and he says, I'm entrusting my helpless lambs, my new believers, my little spiritual children to you, and I want you to tend them. I want you to care for them. I want you to sacrifice for them. I want you to provide and protect them. Everyone who is a child of God through faith in Christ is commanded to love one another and serve one another and care for one another. So this command is not just to pastors. It's to you and me, individually, to watch out for each other and care for each other. What Jesus is saying, you say, well, why would Jesus ask him, Peter, do you love me? Because nothing is more important in your life than your love relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. Nothing is more important in your ministry than loving Jesus. What's the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Scripture also says, we love because he first loved us. The only reason we can love the brothers and sisters is because Jesus loved us first. The only reason we can love him is because he first loved us. So our love is always in response to his love. And Jesus asked Peter the same question three times, one for each of his denials. He denied Christ publicly three times, and now he publicly affirms Jesus three times. And this was done in front of six of the disciples. And that was essential. Ever since Peter's denial, he has been under suspicion by the other disciples. This was our leader. Peter's always shown as the leader in the New Testament of the disciples, and he denied publicly knowing Jesus. Is he a flake? Is he faithful? What's the Lord's going to do with him? So Jesus publicly restored Peter and officially gave him command to take leadership of the twelve and feed the flock of God. Three times Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus commissioned him to shepherd his sheep. So this was a restoration and a recommission, which as we mentioned earlier is good news for us. The sheep belong to who? The good shepherd. No one can say, these are my sheep. You're not your sheep. They belong to Jesus. What's interesting is every time you have a relationship with any human being, the most important relationship is not the horizontal one you have with them. It's the vertical one they have with the Lord. Even when you're married, that's a secondary relationship. The primary relationship is the vertical relationship they have with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is primary. If you forget that, you will almost certainly not treat people the way God wants to treat them. But if you remember that they have a primary relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, now you will treat them as a child of God with respect and honor and grace and love them sacrificially like Jesus asks us to do, commands us to do. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is talking to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Here's our principle. We glorify God by following Jesus as he leads us through both life and death. We glorify God by following Jesus as he leads us through both life and death. Now, Jesus has restored Peter to service, and he says, Peter, here's the price tag you're going to pay for that service. Here's the cost you're going to pay for following me. You will die by crucifixion. In that era, to stretch out your hands was shorthand for crucifixion, because they would stretch out your hands when they nailed them to the crossbeam. So it was shorthand is an idiom. Stretch out your hands meant you were going to be crucified. Peter, being pretty impulsive and pretty headstrong, Jesus said, you know when you were younger, you got up, you girded yourself. That meant you dressed yourself and you did whatever you wanted to do. You, you went wherever you want. When you get older, someone else is going to put your clothes on and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. To a cross. 
Jesus repeats the command he said to Peter three years earlier. What was his primary command to Peter, James, and John three years early? Follow me. He reiterates it after three and a half years of ministry. Follow me. The principle is keep on following me. Now, Peter knew that he was to follow Jesus. And Jesus was going to lead him to the cross. That was going to be how he died. He lived for almost 35 years with the divine promise that when he got old, he was going to be crucified. Tradition says he was crucified in Rome in AD 67. I wonder how it would affect your life if you knew how you were going to die. If God told you, this is how you're going to die. This is the disease this is how long it takes. What would you do with that information? Peter lived for three decades knowing how he was going to die. He had to trust that Jesus would give him the strength and the grace to endure death by crucifixion. But that would change the way you viewed the world. Now, we don't know how or where Jesus is going to lead us. We know our ultimate destination is heaven. But what we don't know is necessarily the journey, the path he's going to use to get us there. We do know that we are commanded to follow Jesus wherever he leads us, and he's going to faithfully lead us through life and through death as well. And the good news is, God knows not only when we are going to die, he knows how we're going to die. He knows everyone in this room how you're going to depart, whether it's an accident or an illness, I don't know. He knows. That should give us great comfort that there's nothing in our life and nothing in our death that surprises him. What is our job? The same as Peter's. Follow me so that you will bring me glory regardless of how I arrange your life and how I arrange your death. We talk about bringing the glory to God a lot by how we live. I want you to think about bringing glory to God by how you die. Dying well is difficult. Pastor Roger laid down a really godly example to die well and to glorify Jesus Christ. How about something a little backside of this? How about glorifying God in your illness? I promise you, you are going to experience illness. And pain. As you age, that's part of life. Our passion is, as we follow Jesus through life, through suffering, through death, our mission is to bring glory to him both in life and death, as Paul said. So Peter, who I can so relate to, gets charged to follow Jesus, and verse 20 tells us, in three words, Peter turned around. Turned his back on Jesus. Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and says, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Here's the principle. It's my responsibility to pursue Jesus relentlessly. It's his right to use me however he chooses. It's my responsibility to pursue Jesus relentlessly. It's his right to use me however he chooses. So Peter and Jesus are having a conversation on the side of the beach. John is following along. Jesus tells Peter, follow me. And Peter immediately turns around, takes his eyes off Jesus, Focus this attention on John. And Jesus just told Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion, right? So now Peter wants to know, what are your plans for John? I mean, is he going to get a better deal than me? <laughs> Wouldn't you be thinking that? You know, John's my bud here. Are you playing favorites? Is he, I mean, what's going to be his method of death? And Jesus essentially tells Peter, mind your own business. Not your job description. If I want John to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? 
Your job is to follow me. Don't get distracted by what I'm doing in the life of someone else. And this is so easy to do. When our life is painful and sorrowful and suffering and our friends seem to be sailing and soaring above and there's no trouble in their life and they don't even have gunky feet. I mean, everything works in their world. No doggy breath. They don't even drool when they sleep. How is this fair, Lord? And Jesus said, you follow me. If it's my call that you experience X and they experience Y, I'm God and that is my job description, not yours. Don't get distracted by what I'm doing in the life of somebody else. Now, Peter, you'd think, well, he knew this. Anytime you take your eyes off Jesus when you're walking on the water like Peter was, you start to sink because we start to compare ourselves. Verse 23. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple, John, would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to John that he would not die, but only if I wanted to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So as a result of this conversation, a rumor gets started that John is going to remain alive until Jesus returns. Now this was the earliest example of date setting in Scripture. We know when Jesus is going to come. He's going to come before John dies. So make sure he gets his vitamin C, right, or whatever. Or maybe we'll feed him a lot of gravy and he'll have cholesterol. He'll die earlier. Jesus comes back quicker. People, you can imagine people saying, you know, John's getting older. Jesus is getting closer because they believe that. Now, the truth is, John says, Jesus didn't say I wouldn't die. He said, Peter, if I want to do this in the life of John, that's my business. You mind your own business. You follow me. I didn't say that John wouldn't die. I said, if I want to do this, you stay focused on me, Peter, not on John. So John ends his gospel. He says, I am the author of this gospel, and what I have written is true. It's not exhaustive, but what I have written is true. John only chooses seven signs. But he says, the world itself cannot contain the full record of what Jesus did. And that's true. History, all of history, is ultimately his story. His story and you can write about that forever. As a matter of fact, we will be exploring that for all eternity when we get to heaven. Amen. But John 20, 31, I'm just going to summarize this for you. John writes, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is of the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. It's not intellectual knowledge only. It is willful submission and following and trusting and believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who died for your sins. And therefore, when you exercise faith in him, you can have eternal life, both in this life and for all eternity. Let's summarize, and then I'll ask, uh, do prayer and praise with Tom. Point one, we fail to accomplish what God intends when we depend on us and not on him. This is very, very subtle. Many of us are very good at praying and saying, God, thy will be done, and then living with our will being done. Number two, God blesses our obedience with divine results and a closer relationship with him. And I can hear some of us saying, I'm obedient, and I never got a supersized catch of fish. Where's my miracle? You've talked to people like that, haven't you? You see people writing that anytime you do what God wants you to do, he's going to bless you as they define it. I said divine results. God determines the results, correct? 
Your greatest miracle is not your catch of fish. It's not a miracle of in this life. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ that gives you eternal life for all eternity. And back to the second point, the most important thing you get out of obedience is it draws you closer to Jesus. That's the payday. That's the prize. That's the treasure. The greatest miracle in your life is your relationship with Jesus. Number four, if you love Jesus, you will care for his family. There is no such thing as a secret agent Christian, and there's no such thing as a Rambo Christian. We do life together. We are a family. We are a team. We're a part of the body of Christ. If we love Jesus and we claim to love him in response to his love for us, we will care for and love his family. And that means people sitting next to you. Number five, we glorify God by following Jesus as he leads us through both life and death. And I probably should say life and suffering and pain and joy, everything. Whether by life or by death or by suffering or by affluence or abundance, whatever it is, we want to glorify Jesus by how we handle life. And then lastly, it's my responsibility to pursue Jesus relentlessly. It's his right to use me however he chooses. If you stay focused on your relationship with Jesus Christ, he will take care of everything else. We spend an enormous amount of time worrying about details. Jesus says, look, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I will give you the desire to do that, and I will give you the ability, the supernatural ability to do that. When you make me the center of everything, I will sort out the details. Wow. Is John rich or what? Eternally rich, a gift from God to us. So thank you for your attention. Read ahead in Exodus, Lord willing, next week we'll open that. I love you all, and now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.